Hey, I'm Mike. And I'm Vince. This is Through the Looking Glass, a podcast where we examine the emotional happenings of history and their portrayals on the big screen. And this week, I don't even know why I said this week, this episode, we are going to be taking a look at the 1962 Japanese film, Harikuri. One thing I want to jump in with right at the start is, if you have any vested interest in actually watching this movie, I recommend doing so without any spoilers. It is important for the emotional development, I'll say. I absolutely agree. That's actually why I didn't want to tell you uh, as much as possible when I told you to watch the film. Right. So, And I was nervous because you're not usually a fan of watching 1960 films from Japan. So, Yeah, that's a very specific subgenre <laughs> that I am not a fan of. So I'm glad, I'm glad you did watch it, though. I enjoyed it. Excellent. And that's what we're going to be talking about. Um, so before we do jump into the discussion about the film, obviously we got to talk a little bit of history, but before we even do that, Vinny, I got to ask you a question. What's that? Can you, in your own words, I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I just want you in your own words to describe what is, or I should say define what's Harikuri or what is seppuku. That would be a samurai method of ritual suicide done to preserve one's honor in the face of great shame, either loss in battle or otherwise. Indeed. Uh, So, yes, it's a form of ritual suicide. It's from Japan. It involves disemboweling yourself, and depending, you might have a second who would decapitate you. Uh, So, it's voluntarily committed by samurai, as you said, in order to retain or regain their honor for whatever reasons. Uh, but it was also sometimes used as a capital punishment for severe offenses, and that did include the samurai. Uh, so one thing I do want to let uh, listeners know is that uh, samurai isn't just a Japanese term for warrior. Many of you might be familiar. It is a part of the hierarchy in Japan. They are a class, right? So it would be like the nobility, the noble class. I think it's pretty important that the ruling class is still subject to capital punishments because obviously there is somebody at the top. There is usually a lord of a domain. Uh, They are the daimyo. And then in this time, feudal Japan, there was obviously the shogun at the top. Uh, So the act of seppuku, um, the heart of it isn't just a punishment. It isn't just something you do in the battlefield and that you're not going to surrender. It is all about honor and regaining it or making sure it's still there. Uh, etymology, I thought it was interesting, is that it means, hurikuri literally means cutting stomach. And then seppuku, what I found out, I could be wrong, but I did learn this from a Japanese vocabulary teacher. If you take the Japanese characters of hurikuri and flip them, like there's two characters, and if you flip them around, that's seppuku. Yeah, which literally means stomach cutting. And then apparently there's a third way. Uh, it's called kapuku. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And that means split stomach. I just wanted to throw that third one in there. I'd never heard of it before, and I thought it was intriguing. Uh, harikuri is the term that's used internationally. That's actually why the film is called harikuri everywhere else except for Japan. Gotcha. Uh, in Japan, they just call it spuku. It was actually considered vulgar, uh, the term harikuri. Uh, it's just a misconception. So seppuku was always used in writing no matter who you were. Uh, if you were a commoner, though, you would usually, when you were speaking, you would say Harikuri, but if you were a nobility, you would say seppuku. Interesting. Yeah. I I can't think of any other examples in history off the top of my head. Well, so we got to remember, I am not an expert because, oh, man, I'm just thinking of all the other movies we covered, all the different topics I'd have to be an expert in. That's a lot of reading. <laughs> right. It's 
Um, and I did want to also mention that there are different interpretations of uh, Harikiri and Spooku. And also, going forward, if I'm talking about the ritual act, I'm going to refer to it as Seppuku. Uh, but if I'm going to talk about the movie, I'm just going to call it Harikiri. Makes sense. Thank okay. you for that. Yeah, no problem. Uh, so, different interpretations. Uh, as I said before, Harikiri uh, was considered vulgar. It was the informal way of committing suicide, where, as I said earlier, you might commit it on the battlefield instead of surrendering. Uh, and seppuku is more ritualistic when somebody would act as a second. So we saw that in the film, right? You would cut yourself, move across, and then the person would decapitate you to put you out of your suffering. So then in the, in the movie, the, mm-hmm. the script, the, the characters are vocalizing seppuku, but the subtitles are saying hurikuri. Yes, I believe so. That explains why I couldn't pick it out from what they were saying. I, I Even some names I couldn't pick out either. The and only one I really got was Shijiwa, because they said it a lot, and it yes. was very clear. Okay. That was uh, Motome, right? Yes. The, okay. There was a lot of names that I was trying to keep a track, keep track of, and then as I was putting my notes together, like just the historical names as well. Yeah. It's a lot. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of uh, the guy that in... Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so as Vince said earlier... If to get the best emotional response from this film or reaction, definitely go in without spoilers. That being said, we can't really analyze or talk about this film without giving spoilers, so that's just a heads up. Uh, I think when we start diving more into the movie, we'll give you a heads up so you can stop listening. Um, but also, watch the movie and then come back and take a listen, because I have so much I want to talk about with this film. It's, I think it's... I feel like you get a lot more from this once you understand a little bit of the historical context, but what I wanted to focus on was more the uh, director himself. Because all of our other movies came out within the last 20 years, so Mm -hmm. the content that they are presenting is detached from the people involved, for the most part. But for this film, we actually have somebody who was alive during huge historical moments. Like The director was involved in World War II. He was conscripted into the Imperial Japanese Army, and those experiences really shaped how he approached his movies. So I want to talk about stuff like that. So before I jump into the historical context of seppuku, is there anything you wanted to add on real quick, Vinny? I will say that ahead of talking about the movie itself, I am not armed with the cultural context to be able to talk about symbolism and imagery that might be significant for a Japanese director. So a lot of what I'm going to say is going to be focused uh, technically on what the film achieved and overall talk about the flow of the story, but I won't be able to dive into any kind of deep symbolism. Yeah, that's totally fine. Uh, I, I'm i really curious to hear your what you got on the, the technical aspects of it. I have a couple of notes on uh, symbols that I caught in the film, so hopefully after I give a little bit of rundown on the cultural context, historical background, and those points... Maybe you'll be able to add on and jump right in. All right. All right. Um, I guess the way I wanted to approach this is, did you did you have any questions for me specifically on like cultural context or historical background? Anything that kind of jumped out to you that you were curious about? I guess, so one thing that I need more explanation of is the different houses of the samurai. Okay. So the entire film takes place in the Yi uh, EA house? clan, yep. EA clan. Yeah. Um, I think EA. So there are different clans, mm-hmm. and there are a couple of lines in the film where characters say that they can't find jobs because we are in times of peace. So put that in context for me. With feudal Japan, were there warring samurai clans all under the shogun? 
Yeah, so there's a time, I'm trying to remember, it's 1467 to roughly 1615 in Japan, and this is known as the Age of Warring States. Uh, it might also be known as the Sengoku period. So this is, so as you said, there are clans or picture-like houses, right? Different families, uh, warriors, they are all fighting for control over Japan. Uh, and then towards the end of this age, uh, 1610s, even before, 1615 is just a rough estimate. It depends on who you ask. Uh, there were three unifiers. It was Oda Nobunaga, uh, Hideyoshi to Toyotomi, and then it was, of course, Tokugawa Ieyasu. I might have flipped some of those names around because in Japan, the last name comes first. Uh, regardless, Oda Nobunaga was a he was a brutal warlord. Uh, he actually conquered a lot, uh, and he paves the way for the unification of Japan under one leader. Uh, and then he is actually surrounded, and he commits seppuku himself. Huh. Yeah, in order so in order to save face, I suppose, and retain his honor, he commits seppuku with. Most of the people in the castle with him. It wasn't his castle. He, he was visiting somewhere else and he was trying to invade. I think he was trying to invade like a different domain. So domain like an area or prefecture of Japan. It wasn't a prefecture at the time. Uh, for folks that may not be familiar, prefecture, consider like a state or something like that. Uh, and then after him, Hideyoshi, uh, he eventually consolidates power and then he dies. And then, of course, Tokugawa Ieyasu takes control. He becomes Shogun. Uh, so during this time, obviously, it's like 200 years of just constant war and battle. The samurai are fighting with each other. It's, it's tough times, but they have a lot of work to do. And now under Tokugawa uh, Ieyasu, he starts to create, uh, especially his family after him, a lot of different mandates and rules. Um, I'm trying to recall because I talked about it in the last samurai episode as well. Or I remember doing research on it. Regardless, um, there's peace. And the samurai find themselves with not as much work to do. Certain domains, depending on who you fought for, were disbanded. So a lot of these samurai become ronin, which are literally wandering samurai or masterless samurai. So they're trying to find work. Uh, their only profession is battle and war, so there's not much need for them. They might find work training people or they try to pick up different crafts because I also want to mention that uh, samurai, they are not just focused on battle. Many of them actually practice writing, uh, calligraphy, different forms of art, poetry even. So they try to dabble in different crafts and depending on those skills, they could try to find a job elsewhere with that. But it was at this time, it was common for a lot of wandering samurai or ronin just trying to find work wherever they go. And actually, that brought me to the point where it says in the film that it was common for Ronin to request permission from a local lord to commit seppuku in their courtyard or wherever uh, in the hopes that they would instead be given like alms or money or work or turned away. Right? And I remember when I saw that, I was like, is that actually the case? And uh, I did a little bit of digging on it, and that does seem to be the case, but don't. That's not to say that every city is going to have Ronin, like, hey, I'm going to go to that lord, I'm going to pull off this bluff, and I'm going to get a lot of money. It's not super common, but it does happen. Gotcha. And mentioning that Ronin samurai would study writing and things like that, that, yes. is, that does appear in the movie, mm -hmm. um, when one of the Ronin tries to find work as basically a tutor. 
another question. Yes. Um, in the movie, they refer to everyone employed as uh, retainers. Yes. So does that just mean being on retainer, like a lawyer, like you're just paid to be ready? Yes, for the most part. I can't give like 100% on the answer only because I, looking at every single thing, I'm not 100% sure. That's how I would view it, though. Yes, that they're on call. They're always on duty. Uh, they are serving this Lord. A retainer for the Lord. Yes. Gotcha. Sorry, that was a long-winded way of saying yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that covers the burning questions that I had. Okay. Um, should we dive into synopsizing? We can. I just really quickly wanted to add a little bit more for... I think it would just benefit people's understandings. Uh, so Bushido is mentioned a lot throughout the film. In fact, I would say this is the director's... This entire film is an attack on Bushido. Uh, so this uh, Bushido is this code of honor that I'm sure most people who are familiar with Japan in any way, culturally or historically, they've heard Bushido before. Uh, it's the code of honor that samurai would follow... Uh, it was actually warped and utilized by militarists and nationalists in 1920s and 30s Japan. And that's when we start to see that fanaticism, that ideology uh, emerge, especially during World War II. Uh, but Bushido is not, it's always been mentioned, like it's been passed down for generations. When, if I asked, I think I asked my dad the other day to tell me about it just in preparation for recording this, uh, when he thought it originated. And he, told me ancient probably ancient times in japan that seems to be what most people believe obviously i can't say that i only asked my dad but i'm also basing this off of years of just going on the internet and seeing armchair historians right um it's not it hasn't been the same code it may have existed in ancient times the first time it was actually written down was much later i think during feudal era japan but it's a it's a fluid document, not even a document. It's just a, a way of life. Uh, there are different interpretations. So Bushido could mean one thing to you and a different thing to me right? or how it's applied. So I just wanted people to know that off the bat. When you talk about Bushido, you can't say it's been the same throughout history because that's not the case. It's, this is a very poor comparison, but it's the first one that comes to mind. It's kind of like when you amend the constitution, it's a living document, right? Right. You don't expect the same issues of 1700s United States to apply in 2020. Right. Or 2021. So would it be fair to say that Bushido is sort of the Japanese version of chivalry? I'm actually really glad you brought that up. A lot of people make that comparison. I think for the sake of simplicity, it's okay to consider it somewhat equivalent to chivalry, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't like outright say, yes, it is exactly like chivalry. I think chivalry was a little bit more defined uh, and prominent, whereas Bushido was, it definitely was defined and it was prominent in Japanese life, but it was, I think it was applied in different ways. Gotcha. So overall though, they serve the same function when it comes to honor in battle and things like that. Yes, I believe so. My, my knowledge on chivalry obviously isn't as much as Bushido, so. Right. Well, I mean, the basics of chivalry, I'm not the history guy here, so I'll just say a couple of examples. No, go for it. If someone drops their sword, you let them pick it up. Yes. Basically. And we see something like that in, in the film during a a big fight Mm -hmm. when everyone attacks one at a time, like a video game. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I would agree then. Yeah, absolutely. 
All right. Uh, so what I also wanted to touch on real quickly was there are different ways that you would show loyalty to your lord. Obviously, seppuku and or hurikuri being the biggest form. Uh, that would actually also be called junshi. I hope I'm pronouncing that correct. Uh, so that is it's defined as like extreme loyalty to your lord. And usually that was in the form of actually committing seppuku after your lord's death. I think we can actually see an example of that in the film when Hanshiro's uh, lord, their clan is disbanded, he commits seppuku, and he's going to commit it, but then his friend does it instead, right? Right. Spoilers, I apologize for everyone. That's <laughs> eh, that's fine. That doesn't really have too much of an impact. Right. Um, and that's something, like I said, you would consider something like that to mostly take place in like the feudal time, but... A huge example of this actually happening was in 1912. Emperor Meiji, he passes away, and there is a general. His name is Nogi Marasuke. He was revered in Japan. He was a hero because during the Sino-Japanese War in the 1890s, he actually ca- he's famous for capturing Port Arthur. So he's a war hero, and he's very you know strict traditionalist, um, which I'm remiss to say traditionalist only because... Bushido had different interpretations even during the Meiji Restoration, so forth, even up until World War II. But he does commit seppuku, him and his entire family, after um, the emperor's funeral procession went by. Uh, he did it at his house, but he also he left a letter saying, you know, that he was going to follow the emperor into the afterlife or into death, and that he didn't feel like he would add any more benefits to society. Hmm. So. I just wanted to add that just because I thought that was just interesting to note that something like this happened in 1912. I'm sure there may have been other historical events uh, linked to Spooku. There is, actually. I just remembered it right now. That's exciting. Uh, I can't remember his full name, but his, uh, he was a Japanese writer. I'll, I'll leave a note on Twitter or social media afterwards for folks. But he was a famous Japanese uh, author. He was controversial uh, for his... Um, his views and his writings and he actually i think he tried to throw a coup of the japanese government he failed and he ended up committing seppuku a writer tried to throw a coup if i'm remembering that correctly that could be very very simplified but i know he did he did do something that and he failed and to him it warranted committing seppuku and and what year was that i want to say 1960s that is fascinating. Yeah. Huh. So <laughs> that's that's one thing that I kind of need to grapple with. Mm-hmm. Uh, does Japanese culture trump your survival instinct? I absolutely cannot imagine having such an intense cultural identity that would drive you to so readily commit suicide in a deliberately painful way. Yeah, I obviously I can't. I can't, I'm not Japanese, so I can't speak for this answer fully. I can't even obviously speak for all of Japan and people who lived through these moments in time. That's absolutely, that's how it's presented. But not every single person or every single application um, has this occur. I mean, I think even the context of the movie, the fact that there are Ronin asking to commit seppuku and the lords are saying, no, 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 giving work instead because they recognize that this person has value. 
even though their code of honor, the one that they're supposed to follow, says, yes, this Ronin should commit seppuku. The Lord instead is like, just give them alms, give them money, tell them to go on their way. That's absolutely not the case. It's like I said, it's how it's presented, but no, just normal people. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about the movie. Yes, absolutely. So how should we synopsize this? Do you want to say it in chronological order or do you want to give a rundown of the entire film? It's plot or just a brief like IMDb summary. The full arc is required to yeah. kind of talk about it more. Mm-hmm. So a man arrives at the gates of the EA uh, yeah. EA house. So I'm um, going with and asks for permission to use their courtyard to commit seppuku. He is then greeted by the individual that tends to that house, and that person regales to him a tale of the last person that had such a request, mm-hmm. and he tells them about how this person arrived, uh, they bathed him and gave him new robes and said that he was going to be meeting with the, ma- with the leader of the clan. And I don't think it was the leader of the clan. I think he was just uh, like, um, I'm forgetting the actual terms involved right now. I'm just, we'll just say like, like he leads the estate when the person, like the, when the Lord's not there. Cause the Lord remember is not present throughout the entire film. Right. But I believe he was offered an audience with the Lord. You are correct. You're right. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Yep. So he is offered this and he's excited and expecting it. Mm-hmm. And then he is presented with, White robes that I assume are ceremonial for committing the act. Correct. And he is told that he needs to go through with it. And basically they slow march him into the courtyard and they present him with his weapon to kill himself with, Mm -hmm. which is a bamboo training sword, I'm assuming. Yeah, because he pawned off his real sword. Right. Which we find out a little later. Yes. Um, So... He needs to basically fall over onto it, and he brutally kills himself in this courtyard, preserving his honor after committing what is considered uh, a very shameful act of basically trying to con this house of samurai. Yes. So, cut back to the the second person who arrived, mm-hmm. and I'm actually going to look up his name because I'm going to be saying it a lot. Uh, Hanshiro. Uh, Hashiro. Yep. Um so Hashiro says Hanshiro. Hanshiro. Yeah, sorry. Hanshiro <laughs> says, "Don't worry about that. Definitely going to kill myself." Yeah. <laughs> so they set up the courtyard again, and Hanshiro requests by name a few specific people that he would like to be a secondary. Mm-hmm. All of them are out sick uh, for the day, mm-hmm. <laughs> and just odd, right? Right. That <laughs> Just here in the alley. He's out sick for the day. <laughs> How does a samurai call in sick? Ah, that's what I was wondering. <laughs> I feel like, like, wouldn't they live really close by to the house? Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Well, that highlights an emotional point that yeah. is a little later in the absolutely. film. So. so this prompts the suspicion of the, the tender of the house. And he basically asks what this dude's up to. And... Hanshiro admits that the first person that killed themselves there, which was uh, Shijiwa, mm-hmm. uh, which, last name Shijiwa, Matome is his yes. first yep. name. Uh, he was Hanshiro's son-in-law. 
mm-hmm. who was trying to get money to get a doctor for his wife and child. Yep. So, uh, Hanshiro's daughter and grandson. Yes. The actions of the Ia, Ia house mm-hmm. basically led to this man's family dying around him. So, we get a very strong setup for a revenge plot. Yes. Um, we get a lot of good background on why this, why Hachiro cares so much about his son-in-law. Uh, because back in um, Hiroshima, he was a samurai with in the same house, in the same company. Mm-hmm. And he was good friends with this boy's father. And then he took him under his wing, basically, and raised him as a son. Yep. And then he got married to his daughter and everything was happy. Uh, and I believe there's actually a line that he says where uh, there were no happier days than when they were all living together, even though they were poor. And I would like to note that he becomes his, uh, like, a father figure to this boy because, as I mentioned before, their leader of their clan commits spooku after it's disbanded. And then right. Hanshiro is the one who intends to commit that act of Junshi following his lord into death, but his friend does it instead. Exactly. Yeah. So from there. Uh, the there's a lot of exposition. The emotional meat of the movie takes place while they're talking in that courtyard. Yeah. And then it is slowly revealed that Hanshiro took the top knots of the, the three men that were out sick, mm-hmm. and they were also the three men that were responsible for the brutality of his son-in-law's death. Yep. Um, and it turns out that they decided to call in sick instead of show the great shame of losing their top knot, which, as I understand it, is a horrible shame that death cannot cleanse. Absolutely. It's worse than having your head cut off, uh, which is what I believe Anchio says in the film. Right. And, yeah, it's... His his whole delivery of that scene, I just... I I absolutely love it. It was brilliant. It's... So, 1962 is when this came out. Correct. And for some context, that is when To Kill a Mockingbird, Lawrence of Arabia, and Dr. No came out. Pretty good year. (laughs) Right. I would say that the execution of this movie Mm -hmm. is not what you'd expect from something in the 60s. Absolutely. A lot of the... I'll get into this more when I'm finished Mm -hmm. recounting the story, but a lot of the shots, (laughs) a lot of the structure is ahead of its time. So, Hanshiro's whole idea is pointing out that Bushido is a facade. Mm -hmm. It is kayfabe of the samurai of this time. Uh, They are preserving this illusion that there's this honor. And... By showing these men as cowards for calling in sick, he is proving that point, uh, or trying to, and then all of the samurai are ordered to descend upon him, to kill him. Uh, He fights through a bunch of them, knocks over the ceremonial armor of the house, and then commits seppuku. And in the end, this is my biggest sticking point on the movie that I don't quite get. Okay. The leader of the house takes measures to basically cover up everything that happened. Yes. And make it make it so that no one would know of yep. what took place. And I feel like that undercuts the point of what Hanshiro is saying. But I'm going to put a pin in that. Okay, yeah. Because I want to talk about the execution of the movie a little bit. Yep. 
at the start, so I think this, the, the structure of what I'm going to talk about is why this movie is so impactful. Mm-hmm. And it is something that we don't see executed very well very often. Most of what we hear in the first third of the movie is from the head of the house. Yeah. We have Hanshiro saying, I'm going to kill myself. And the head of the house is saying, are you sure about that? Let me tell you this story. The audience is sitting from a place where we know Bushido. We know the cultural importance of it. We know the vaguely the status of the samurai and how important honor is. Mm-hmm. So when there is, there's this scene where the group is meeting and talking about what they should do about this problem of beggars, and they settle on the fact that they should make Chijiwa go through with suicide, mm-hmm. where the audience is sitting, that makes sense if we are rooting for this group, yes. if we're identifying with them, which we are because we're coming from the cultural context of that being important. Yep. So there is, it it feels virtuous for them to go through with this brutal act because it's on screen and it doesn't matter and because that's what's emotionally important. But then, as soon as it flips around and Hanshiro starts telling his story, that facade crumbles in front of us. Yes. So we come in from the place of Bushido. Yep. We feel the importance of what's happening, uh-huh. and then seeing this man and his daughter weep over the body of the provider for their family, mm-hmm. it just it kicks you in the gut. Yeah, it's <laughs> so well done. It is really effective. Yeah, it's. I think that's why we said to go into this movie as blind as possible because it is so effective the first time you see it. Right. Because if you knew any of that, then mm-hmm. it's immediately undercut. Oh, absolutely. Like, even knowing that the house is the bad guys, mm-hmm. you just, it's gone. The yeah. emotional impact isn't there. Absolutely. Because, I mean, even the film starts off in the actual um, courtyard or the palace or household of right. the place. Yeah. The, yeah. the opening crawl is mm-hmm. the logbook of yeah. the palace, of them saying what's happening. The master mm-hmm. is out delivering a trout or something. Yeah. And... And that's it. That's what's happening today. You see also uh, the shots of the armor, because I want to come back and talk about the armor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you see the, just the different shots of the household. It's well kept. It's very nice. Everything seems to be in order, right? And I think just the presentation is so important because, as you said, when the facade crumbles away, it's it falls apart. <laughs> yeah. And so talking about the, the start of seeing the house, the opening credits mm-hmm. is... If it was in color, it could be from a movie made today. Yeah. It was the perfect establishing shots, uh, you know, focusing on the map of the palace, the mm-hmm. lotus, the tiger, the armor. It's I, I wouldn't expect anything different from a modern film. Yeah. And especially because so much of it takes place in this house. Yeah. It's important to do that establishing. Mm-hmm. And they do such a good job with it where... At the first scene, you are dropped in the middle of a conversation. Yeah. And you just pick up and you can go with it from there without missing anything else. So mm-hmm. very well done for the start of establishing everything. Um, it all made sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, watching through with subtitles, I was able to, <laughs> you know, gather everything that I needed to at that point. It also proves translations are extremely important. 
Right. When they say something can be lost in translation, that is absolutely the case. But this is this is Criterion Collection, so which I know doesn't really mean too much because a lot of weird movies are in Criterion. But no, I thought the translation was really well done. Right. A couple things technically. Okay. Are you familiar with uh, Deep Focus? I believe so, but why don't you refresh my memory and also for other folks who might not be familiar. Right. So there is a, a, a plane that the camera can see that is in focus. Okay. Due to technical limitations, for a while that plane was very narrow. Yes. Um, so you had a lot of depth of field. Mm-hmm. Orson Welles with Citizen Kane, a lot of the, the big stuff from that movie came because he developed a technique to enable deep focus. Okay. To be able to see a large spectacle field of things. Mm-hmm. This movie takes an interesting approach to making that possible in the courtyard scene where the spearmen are out and surrounding him and the main character is talking he is actually the background is masked out and it is a still image of the spearmen okay and so it is that you know they they shoot it once of just still with Covering part of the film so that you can only see the spearman. Then you they record back over that same roll of film with him talking in the foreground. So that way we have the full scenery taking place. Mm-hmm. It's it's just something I found neat that, is no, that's that really they were able to to make that happen um, with those limitations. I feel like limitation always. Well, what is the phrase? Like it just kind of limitation breeds creativity. Breeds creativity. Yeah. Effects wise, everything holds up. I think some of the, like the stunts, like especially in the final fight, come across as a little wonky, but yeah, that's. I think it works really well. So yeah, I didn't know how much of that to attribute to samurai fighting style, and how much of that was just no. That's they would definitely have just all hacked him and killed him right away. Right, you're trying to kill someone, you're going to kill him. Right. Yeah. Very well acted. Mm-hmm. Very well done technically, and that's all I have to say about that. So, looking at character arcs, yes, this movie is told non-chronologically mm-hmm. in a way that you can absolutely mess it up very easily. Oh, absolutely. Without the pacing, mm-hmm. without the way that they broke up the flashback sequences, it would have been very easy for you to completely lose the thread with Nishiro yeah. and just forget that that's happening mm-hmm. and then just focus on Shijiwa and then, oh, wait, yeah, we got this other guy now. So, I think by... Cutting back and forth so yeah. frequently, mm-hmm. uh, they were able to keep that consistent. And the fact that it the, the cutting takes place throughout the film and they always feel relevant. There's yes. always a reason for this conversation to continue. It's well done. It keeps your attention. Mm-hmm. It keeps everything in focus for you mentally. And it is very easy to mess up a character arc when you start at the end. Absolutely. Um, I just wanted to make that note. I think also them cutting, even if they only cut for like 10 seconds for Hanshiro, like saying something or adding a comment, it really kind of gives you the feel that this movie is somebody telling a story. Right. So as you said, pacing, I thought was top notch. Um, did you have any other comments technically or not technically character arc wise? A couple of important characters lack arcs. Okay. So the point of a revenge story the central tension is usually a character grappling with the effects of their pursuit for revenge, mm-hmm. deciding if their desire for revenge or retribution is worth the collateral damage, 
uh, the character struggling to find what's morally right about their quest mm-hmm. and going on a, a path of growth as a result. Yeah. On the other side of it, the person who's having revenge sought against them mm-hmm. should typically have a side of the coin. Yeah. Um, they should have feelings about it. It should be emotionally complex. Yeah. Once we get to the point where the revenge is wrought, there is no more of that tension. And I don't think anyone learned anything. I think that's kind of the point, too. I think the lead guy definitely was shaken from it. Um, and that actually brings me to the point where how you said it kind of feel when he kind of just shoves it aside and pretend like he just pretending like, okay, they died of illness. This accident here, Hanshiro committed. He came here. He has to commit seppuku. He did so honorably. That's it. That's right. what happened. I think that's that's the point of the movie is that because so the director Masaki Kobayashi he always said that his films usually were about independent idealistic protagonists that were confronting usually an entrenched power or even a corrupt power and they usually are always crushed by that power and I think we can definitely easily see that in this film mm-hmm. and I think it's it comes across to me as a very very bitter movie bitter but also it's i do think there's a lot of beautiful moments in it like just the family function and the love that they show each other and to me the film was it was about how humanist ideals are kind of thrown aside and ignored when you are trying to uphold or adhere to very strict codes of honor right i can never understand how it feels like it would be undercut but i think it kind of being swept aside kind of drives the final point home in that this is easily something that could have happened historically. Right. So that, that brings to mind a a comparison that might sound a little strange, but Mm -hmm. uh, the wall, Pink Floyd's the wall. Okay. So that is a, a response to the power struggle around uh, independence and world war two in England. Yeah. So you mentioned that the director was involved in world war two. Yes. Do you want me to actually give you a little bit of background on him, or do you want me to hold that thought? I have an idea yes. of where this might have come from. Okay. You you did say that he was conscripted, right? You're correct. So, if this film came from a place of frustration with that, mm-hmm. of bucking that entrenched power, as you say, looking at it as a sort of allegory for the pain that the war caused... I could definitely see that, and I could see the futility uh, coming into play. It goes a little bit deeper into that, too. Um, do you mind if I just give you a little brief rundown Tell of his life? Because his, I mean, he's the type of, I think every artist, your life and your experience is obviously going to inform whatever you create. It's definitely the case with Kobayashi. Uh, Sue, he was born in 1916 in Otaru, which was a port city and the northernmost island of Japan, Hokkaido. Uh, so this is a very uh, snowy region. Uh, this was not originally part of Japan, so there was you know nomadic peoples living there. It was conquered. Um, so he grew up in the mountains, and he actually grew up in a very well-off family. Uh, they his father worked for various companies um, that worked with different trades. Uh, And his mother was actually very focused on making sure that he and his siblings had a cultured upbringing. So she would often bring him to art galleries, um, theater performances, things like that. And he saw a film when he was young and because of his love of art and theater, philosophy, things like that, he wanted to become a filmmaker. He was obsessed with it. Uh, So he attended uh, 
Waseda University, Waseda, let's go with Waseda. Regardless, uh, he studies under a famous Japanese poet um, and art historian. His name is Aizu Yaichi, uh, who actually convinces him to completely focus just on his art studies instead of filmmaking. So Kobayashi focuses on that. He's in love with, uh, he focuses on Chinese and uh, ancient Japanese art. And then after he finishes his time at that university, in 1941, he decides, no, I do want to be a filmmaker. I feel like that's the most uh, accessible form of art for me to get my ideas out there. So he actually kind of cuts off contact with Aizu Heichi, which was very sad because they actually became very close. He actually um, would go over to his house regularly. They would have food together. They would talk, lectures. It was like a mentor relationship. And then uh, Kobayashi is conscripted into the Imperial Japanese Army uh, in late 1941 and in early 1942 he's sent to Manchuria uh, which is interesting because people may or may not realize Japan brutalized Chinese workers in Manchuria during this time and Kobayashi's probably one of his most famous pieces of film is a trilogy called The Human Condition which came out in 1959 to 1961-62 Uh, It's a film about a Japanese soldier during World War II who is a pacifist and who's also a communist, and he's trying to resist it. And Kobayashi witnesses the brutalization of these Chinese workers in his own experience. He doesn't see frontline action at all. He's actually sent to an island that is, I think, southeast of Okinawa. Okinawa being the one of the bloodiest battles in the Pacific War, at least. So Kobayashi's lucky. He gets to miss it, but he still suffers. He... uh, suffers from starvation, lack of supplies, they're cut off, they have to deal with constant bombardments of enemy planes, Uh, and a lot of his writings and his journals help keep him sane, but they are just ruminations on life, death, and they're very bitter, they range from feeling despair and hopelessness, and he brings these experiences back, but he's always had a uh, pacifist mindset. He's always been very uh, outspoken against war or violence. So what's interesting is that when all of these filmmakers go back after the war, Japan's going through like a transformation at this time where they feel victimized by the militarists and the leaders. And they, how they respond to this is they actually reject almost everything military. So Kobayashi, it's perfect for his time because he seizes that, that moment culturally and he produces these anti-war films. And Harikiri is obviously amongst those, but it's a look back because Bushido is at the heart of why many Japanese people did what they did, or at least that's what they say, right? Right. You know, uh, glory to the emperor, long live the emperor, things like that. So Kobayashi's The Human Condition, that trilogy, which is definitely brilliant. I don't know if we're going to cover it on this podcast because it is a nine-hour epic that would (laughs) take a very long time. It could easily be like a series on it. I definitely recommend it to people, uh, but that is based a lot on his experiences. But I think he's still taking those feelings and, like you said, the the futility and applying it to Harikiri in a more focused attack on the ideology of Bushido. Right. While also reaching a cultural touchstone that's relevant to his people at the time. Absolutely. But I think it also works not only just for him, but internationally it was applauded as well. I mean, it's... Uh, Kobayashi is a famous uh, Japanese film director, but 
if I were to ask you, do you know of any classical Japanese film directors? What would you say? Kobayashi. You just know Kobayashi now? Now I do, yes. Now you do? Uh, maybe Akira Kurosawa? Oh, of course. Yeah, obviously. Right. Yeah. Kurosawa is the biggest one. You know what's interesting is I actually wanted to... I printed out a quote. So when Kobayashi came back, Kurosawa was uh, had a bigger start to his career. Uh, he saw one of Kurosawa's earliest films, and Kobayashi said, I was overwhelmed and felt I can't compete. Even if I managed to become a director, I would never be able to make a better film than that. Uh, and his mentor at the time when he is uh, being an apprentice director at a studio uh, kind of points out that, well, you know, directors have different strengths, right? So Kobayashi actually develops a pretty shrewd assessment of uh, Kur- Kurosawa. So he compares Kurosawa to his mentor, and he says that they're completely opposite kinds of directors. Kurosawa pushes through his statement by seizing the audience, even if he distorts reality. That's his irresistible charm. But his way of directing has a set pattern. On the other hand, Kinoshita's direction is brilliant. Moreover, there is a wider range. His directing style changes to suit the subject matter. It is precise. Um, So I think I like that because you can see that style applied to his films right which is difficult because we're only talking about the one again i think all of these past experiences and all of these people kind of it culminates and you can easily see all of this forming in harikiri yeah definitely did you have any final things you wanted to add anything you wanted to touch on no uh there was whenever a, a character didn't hear another quite well they would say oh yeah <laughs> a lot yeah. And that was always very uncomfortable. Oh, really? Because I, I, it felt so out of place. Oh, you're not used to Okay. Right. Yeah. So uh, I did want to mention that suit of armor, because it's there at the beginning and it's there at the end, right? And how that suit of armor, um, for me at least, I thought it kind of it symbolizes Bushido, because it's all about appearing honorable, even if you're not acting honorably. Right. And it also represents the ancestors and traditions that have always upheld this code of honor, and how... When Hanshiro is literally grabbing onto it, he's holding onto it, you know, as they immediately back off, right? They're pointing the swords like, oh my god, he's got the armor. And I think that that just proves his point. They care more about the appearances, right? And they are valuing this code over human uh, lives. Right. So it's it's interesting because, as you mentioned before, you know, the movie assumes that viewers and critics have this background understanding of seppuku. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, but that doesn't mean that the film won't resonate if you lack that knowledge because of how it's presented. But also, for me, I felt it was a very humanist film. Right. right? And uh, as I said before, Saito, he even has the deaths in the palace reported as illness. Those three samurai, they lost their top knots. They're told to commit seppuku. Uh, the one who, in the final duel, he does commit it afterwards. That final duel was beautiful, by the way. Yes. Um, and they restore everything. It's just, as you said, the facade is gone, though. Because once it crumbles, it's never built back up. And I think, as you said before, going into the perspective of these guys being, the house being the good guys in the beginning, or at least not villains, right? Mm-hmm. Having some similar shots to the opening afterwards. Right. Very, very similar. Almost like the exact same. Yeah. It really, I think it's just... Uh, Kobayashi was a master in how he was emotionally leading you along this journey. Right. Yeah, the the armor was standing in the first shot, and yeah. it was standing in the last shot. Yep. Very Even well though done. we know it was fallen in the one scene, right. covered in blood. Even the house, right? It was the blood stain of the one guy who fell on it, too. Yeah. yeah. So. I didn't... Oh, I didn't even notice that. Yeah. The, 
cutting to the lotus when that was yeah. covered in blood. Dang. Yeah. There's there's a lot of good symbols. I mean, you can easily rewatch it and probably find a lot more. So absolutely. Yeah, I think that covers all I have to say about this film. That covers what I have too. Yeah, it's a great film. I easily recommend it. I do as well. And uh, thank you everyone for listening. And next movie, I promise we're going to be moving away from Japan and covering some (laughs) different country. (laughs) All right. See you next time. See you next time.